Luke chapter 8, 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. This is the word of the Lord. My uh, father attended college at a small school in eastern Kentucky in a small farm town, just about an hour's drive from the small farm town that he grew up in. His life was far from on the straight and narrow in those days, and he frequented a local watering hole with quarter beers called Poopsiatsis. That was its real name. (laughs) With a group of friends that included his cousin Johnny Zane, also real name. Uh, On one particular evening, old Zane stayed for last call after everyone else had called it a night, and he rolled in about an hour later, cut up on his face and chest and arms, dirt and grass stains all over him, and he had this epic tale about how three or four guys had jumped him after the others had left, and while he had sustained a few cuts and bruises, they had picked the wrong man to mess with, and you should have seen what he was able to do to them. Now, while this story was both entertaining and impressive, it also struck my father as unlikely. You see, Zane stood 5'5 at best and probably weighed a buck 20 soaking wet. He looked more like a guy that might be serving you tempeh with cashew sauce in Portland than he did a guy that would fight off a gang of street fighters just all on his own. So my father stopped in at Poopsies, as the regulars called it, and spoke to the owner, who, yes, he did have a personal relationship with already in the first semester of freshman year. And he said, no, Johnny didn't get jumped. Come back here. I'll show you what happened. And they stepped onto the back patio of the place where a tree branch still lay across one of the picnic tables, looking like the morning after a storm. Apparently, a group of co-eds was seated in the back at that picnic table, just enjoying themselves quietly, when Zane decided this was a good opportunity to show the world what he was working with. And so he steps onto the back patio, climbs up on this picnic table, jumps up to the tree above, and begins repping out chin-ups on one of the tree branches, having said nothing with no other context. He gets about two and a half reps into this exercise when the tree branch snaps, sending him tumbling down, landing directly on top of the pointed wooden fence that lined the patio, sustaining cuts and bruises all over his chest, arms, and face. It was the patio fence beneath nature's chin-up bar that had mugged him, not a group of three to four. This is one of the many legendary stories that I heard my father tell and retell throughout my childhood. He is a storyteller from a family of storytellers, a small town man who knew how to hold a room late into the night 
weaving a story right up to a punchline that would send grown men weeping into laughter. Most of his stories came from those college years, and none of them involved going to class. Uh, <laughs> he finished up that first semester sporting a 1.2 GPA uh, as he returned home for the holidays. He was able to bounce back strong in the next semester with a 1.8 before hitting a sophomore slump and dropping to 0.92 <laughs> in his sophomore year. When he told me about this as a kid, I would ask how he was still enrolled in school at this point, and he simply responded, it was a different time in the American education system, son. <laughs> in a last-ditch effort to find some sort of pathway toward graduation, he enrolled in a, uh, a low-level accounting class, and he found that he could actually uh, do this quite naturally. He graduated five years after enrolling, uh, with an accounting degree, and he landed a job in a Nissan car dealership three hours south in Nashville. Fast forward a decade, he has been promoted several times. He's now the general manager of a dealership under that same owner. He buys a big house with a backyard and a spare bedroom somewhere in the suburbs. He is the youngest of six, the only one of his siblings to leave the small farm town that he grew up in. Johnny Zane and all those other characters from his stories have now moved back to make ends meet, mainly doing manual labor in the place that he's from. He is a success story. He's pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He's the one that made it out of the town and didn't just make it out, but made it in the big city. And around that time, he was personally invited by a pastor at the church that we attended, a pastor who he hardly knew, on a trip to a small East Asian country called Kyrgyzstan. And in a way that I did not have words for then, but I can remember observing in him, even as an eight-year-old, he was different when he got back. He uh, ended up traveling across the world ten times on trips to that nation over the next few years. Every single member of my family accompanied him, including me, at least one time. His heart had been captured and his eyes been widened by Jesus and the presence of Jesus among these people in a world where gathering in the name of Jesus wasn't even permitted legally at that time. He was so totally captured that all of his old college stories that made you weep with laughter had now been replaced by these uh, adventure with Jesus stories rooted in the, the mountains of Kyrgyzstan that made you weep a different kind of tears. So totally captured that he planned to move our family to Kyrgyzstan to trade his career for a mission and his big suburban house for a yurt and an American dream for a kingdom dream. And he even met with Dan, the national director of a missions agency that, that oversaw all of the work in Kyrgyzstan, a man who'd grown into a close friend over those years. And Dan said, don't do it. Don't move here. Go back where you are where you've already planted roots and live exactly how you think you're moving here to live. Following Jesus includes an unpredictable cadence of wonder and disorientation. There's eye-opening wonder that sets your heart on fire and your steps in a particular direction, then as soon as you think you've got the plot of the story and you know where this thing's going, there's a twist that rips you out of the plot that you thought you were living and you struggle to find your bearings again. Like 10 trips over a few years that make you want to trade an upward mobility vision for a wild adventure with Jesus vision and then, nah, don't do it. Stay right where you are. What? But I thought, by the time you get to, Luke eight, to chapter 8 in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been bouncing around from village to village. He's amassing this growing throng of followers through teaching and miracle working. And everywhere he goes, his invitation is the same. Follow me. To fishermen at the dock, follow me. A tax collector behind the booth, follow me. A demonized and delivered woman, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Until Luke chapter 8. The man from whom the demons has gone out begs to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, according to verse 39, saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Huh? 
I mean, this is the same Jesus who promised Peter rewards for anyone who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. There it is, first on the list. There's a reward for those willing to leave home. And Jesus tells this would-be disciple, return home. This is the same Jesus who in the very following chapter, Luke 9, tells another man he didn't even have time to go and bury his father to drop everything and drop it right now and drop it just like all the others did and come and follow me. And he's on the shore of the Gerasenes with a man radically climbing into his boat, ready to do that very thing that he's called all these other people to do. And Jesus says, no, don't do it. Return home. This is Jesus who has built a movement on a single invitation to every kind of person in every kind of place. Follow me. And just as that movement is beginning to gain some real momentum, Jesus tells one would-be disciple not to follow him. If you're not scratching your head, you haven't been paying attention. What's going on here? Wonder and disorientation. Follow Jesus for any length of time and you're bound to run into both. The thing about disorientation, though, is that with Jesus, it's those moments, the confusing, difficult, even painful moments that often hold the greatest treasures. It's those that become the most startling and enlivening moments of clarity for those willing to keep on after Jesus in the midst of the confusion, pain, and disorientation. That's what happened to my father, and it's what happens to this delivered demoniac. What Luke shows us in chapter 8 of his gospel, you see, is inseparably tied to a later moment, one he shows us in chapter 1 of his sequel, Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus commissions his disciples as his witnesses, and eventually some of them are going to go far from home to unexpected places to tell their stories. But witness, according to the resurrected Jesus, starts at home, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he sends them all then to an upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is the firstborn of the new creation, and the first thing that he does is send his disciples back home. The first witness Jesus called was a restored demoniac, and he sent him on a wild, thrilling mission back home, where his roots were deepest. So we are in a teaching series on community right now, and today we're going to be looking at the theme of community as witness. Uh, a week ago today, we acknowledged that a fruitful harvest comes from the deepest roots. And today, Jesus sends a would-be disciple back home for that very reason, because the most fruitful harvest comes from the deepest roots. I'm giving you the punchline right there before telling you the joke. I'm reading the last page before we walk through the story. Hang on to it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now this word witness literally means someone who experiences something important for others to know about. Somewhere along the way in recent church history, uh, witness became a synonym for evangelism uh, in some circles. And while witness does include telling someone else about Jesus, that's also a minimization of what the full meaning of the word really is. The theologian N.T. Wright says, modern Christians use the word witness to mean tell someone else about your faith. The way Luke seems to be using it is tell someone else that Jesus is the world's true Lord. The story of what happened next is written in such a way as to say, this is how the kingdom is to come. This is how Jesus is starting to rule the world. This is what it will look like uh, when God becomes king on earth as in heaven. You see, Jesus came as the king of a new kingdom. Witnesses are those who live in a contested world under the reign of another king and of a surely coming kingdom. To bear witness to Jesus and to his kingdom, therefore, looks like taking in a foster child 
and living simply when it comes to your possessions and generously when it comes to your finances. It looks like sharing a prophetic word and celebrating Sabbath among friends and family and serving at the local homeless shelter or nursing home. To be a witness means ordering your day by prayer and prioritizing undistracted time with your children and being a great listener. To bear witness to Jesus takes on an endless variety of expressions, just like there's an endless array of colors in a color wheel. But just as every shade that we know and can perceive gets traced back to three primary colors, so we can trace back every expression of witness back to three primary categories or categories of expression. Spoken love, supernatural love, and sacrificial love. So first, we are a community of witnesses by spoken love. Let me uh, let you in on two pictures, two very real recent moments in my life. First, uh, for his seventh birthday, Hank and I made an overnight trip up to Seattle to catch a Mariners game. Now, he'd never been to a baseball game before, and he wanted the full experience. He wanted popcorn and hot dogs and to stay all the way till the end and everything like that. He even suckered me into wildly overpaying for a jersey of his favorite player. But I was weak, and he was missing that tooth. (laughs) On the way out of uh, the game when it ended, there was a sidewalk preacher who had set up a soapbox right outside the stadium. He was quoting Bible verses out of context, issuing this collage of warnings and promises. And that's what comes to mind for so many of us when we hear a word like evangelism. And that, what that man was doing, is a form of evangelism. And because that particular expression of speaking about Jesus is generally off-putting, but experienced often enough, the vast majority of thoughtful, committed Jesus followers tend to dread and avoid evangelism altogether. Second picture. I was uh, by the front desk of 24-hour fitness a couple of weeks ago waiting on a lift ride, which was nine minutes. Yes, nine minutes away. Two guys were working behind the front desk together. One of them was clearly new. And the new guy starts explaining about how he loves really unhealthy Chinese food, but he also wants to get really fit. So he starts talking all about how he's discovered this recipe for making Kung Pao at home that uses way less sugar. Nine minutes later, the subject hadn't changed. He was still talking about the home recipe, still describing the dish and how it threads the needle between cravings and fitness goals. And that, too, is a form of evangelism. You see, any discussion on spoken love has to begin with the acknowledgement that everyone is preaching a gospel. The gospel of authenticity by self-expression, or the gospel of sexual liberation, the gospel of democratic socialism, or of American nationalism, the gospel of holistic medicine, or of um, conscious carbon footprint reduction, or the gospel of food hacks for fitness junkies. Everyone is preaching a gospel. It is statistically true that today the Christian church is shrinking dramatically in the Western world. It is ballooning in in certain parts of the Eastern Hemisphere, but is deflating in the West. Which is particularly interesting because historians contend that the spread of the early Christian church throughout the ancient world is unmatched by any other socio-spiritual phenomenon in recorded history. So how did this happen? How were the earliest Christian communities such effective witnesses that we've never seen a sociological phenomenon like it, and we have become such ineffective witnesses that it is threatening the extinction of the Christian church in the Western world? Well, second century Greek philosopher Celsus mocked the church's growth among lower rungs of society, saying, by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of God, they show that they want and are able to convince only foolish, dishonorable, and stupid only slaves, women, and little children. That is not a Facebook post by your politically volatile uncle. That is the writing of one of history's most respected ancient philosophers. What is behind his sharp critique of the early Christian church? Well, you see, the way that a spirituality commonly gained traction in the ancient Greco-Roman world was through public debate among educated elites. We see this biblically when Paul goes to Athens in Acts chapter 17. 
By winning public debate through the eloquence of your argument, you could then gain converts. And the context dictated that the converts you would gain would be the educated elites of that particular society. The community of Jesus' followers was suspect because it wasn't going through the elites and it wasn't uh, one in the debate circles. It was a very peculiar movement which had rich historic institutional roots in the Jewish temple, but it was also a very grassroots movement that was expanding through friendship and common life. The Jesus movement spread among the enslaved because it dignified them as equal image bearers rather than second-rate possessions. It spread among women because in a world where marital infidelity and polygamy were celebrated, these communities told a different story and lived by different values that dignified both married and unmarried women. The early church was also profoundly urban, meaning Christians shopped in the same markets and they drew from the same wells, and they lived in the same neighborhoods as everyone else, but they lived there by a completely foreign set of values under a completely different king. So how were the earliest communities bearing God's image as such effective witnesses? It was not primarily by convincing the elites in the debate circles, but by living compelling lives. Uh, they lived in the world like Jesus is king. They were city dwellers with normal networks of relationships, living by the values of another kingdom. Joseph Hellerman writes, People did not choose to follow Jesus solely because of what the early Christians believed. They converted because of the way in which the early Christians behaved. Oxford scholar Michael Green estimates that 80% of early church evangelism came through a natural network of relationships, not through formal teaching or preaching. Luke's gospel contains more references to save and salvation than the other three by a long shot. It also contains more depictions of Jesus sitting down to break bread with others than the other three by a long shot. That is not a coincidence. That is because that is exactly where witness or where evangelism most effectively happens in the course of ordinary life in proximity to others while living under the reign of another king. Salvation, both biblically and historically speaking, is not primarily the planned result of an evangelistic cause or a church-planned outreach project. It's the effect of getting close to the new family of Jesus. It is the natural effect of coming into proximity with a community, practicing the way of Jesus together in a contested world. Bridgetown Church is a community at the heart of Portland, uh, made up of city dwellers with a network of normal relationships, putting us in the perfect position for effective witness if we live our everyday lives like Jesus is king. The trouble is, somewhere along the way, we adopted the witness mentality of Celsus, not of Jesus. You see, the unspoken assumption among modern Western believers is that witness happens best through eloquent persuasion, not through relational proximity to a local community living by the values of another world. We assume that most people become followers of Jesus in this simple three-step process. First is conversion, uh, some moment when a person hears the right explanation uh, by the right person and it clicks. Some version of, if she could just get here on Easter and Tyler doesn't mess this up, it could happen. Then comes community. Involvement in the local church follows and that profound experience gets worked out relationally and then finally apprenticeship. From there you begin to learn and to practice the way of Jesus in community. And the really interesting part about this assumed method of witness is that it sounds a whole lot more like Celsus. Excelsus would have respected that. That looks exactly like what he thought the early church should have been doing, right? Win the debate, and then maybe you can have my allegiance and even some of my behavior and practices. That was Celsus's assumption of how spirituality spreads. And generally, we hold that same assumption. Truthfully, though, witness happens by flipping these first two steps. It's less like one, two, three, more like two, one, three, if this is our model. It begins with community, proximity to a local community of Jesus' followers living by a foreign set of values in a common place. 
And then comes what we call conversion. That proximity to a compelling community leads me to a path of relationship and then later belief. But resonance with behavior typically comes before resonance with belief or explanation. The person who comes into the kingdom in a moment from a sermon, apart from prior relationship to a believer or a community of believers is the exception, not the rule. That does happen, and those stories are real. But in recent times, the church has become over-reliant on an evangelistic method built on exceptions when we know that historically and experientially, it happens more like this. And then finally, apprenticeship. From there, you begin to learn and practice the way of Jesus in community. Kwong's story, which he graciously let us all in on earlier today, is one of the most encouraging and enlivening to me in our church in recent history. And I still remember the rainy Sunday afternoon when I took a walk around the neighborhood with him and apologized for not being John Mark. And <laughs> he told me his story. And uh, as he was sharing about his own experience among this community of witnesses, he also included that the night before on that Saturday, he had been at a wine bar just around the corner catching up with a colleague that he'd known since university. And after a couple of hours together when the place was near closing time, after catching up about work and family and so forth, Kwong said, hey, something really important has happened in my life that I'd like to let you in on. I've become a follower of Jesus. And this colleague then sat across from Kwong sipping his wine as he explained the improbable series of events that had led him to walking behind Jesus as his Lord and Rabbi. He told his story. He returned home and told how much God had done for him in the language of Jesus in Luke 8. And nothing amazing happened. But neither was he put off or offended by it. He received it the way you receive anything that someone that you respect and care for says with, hey, I'd like to tell you about something really important that's happened to me recently. A man stumbling through year one of discipleship with Jesus spoke love during last call, catching up with a friend, and a little wine bar on Broadway was flooded with heaven coming to earth. So there I am with my son walking out of the Mariners game in downtown Seattle listening to a preacher belt warnings and invitations into a bullhorn. And as I reflect on it, I think the issue with this form of preaching the gospel is that it makes me think less about Jesus and more about you, right? Less about the one that you're talking about and more about the one doing the talking. But when I heard Kwong's story, the opposite thing happened. Somehow he disappeared and all I could see was Jesus. Jesus sitting there taking the last sip out of a glass of wine. Jesus paying the bill. Jesus sharing a story with a friend. And that's when we've gotten it right. When the way we speak about Jesus looks distinctly like the Jesus we're speaking about. Alan Jones says, evangelism has been infected by the desire to package things for easy consumption. Jesus doesn't sell well except as a narcotic that will take away your pain and make you intensely happy all the time. The question for the believer is how to tell the truth in faith so that what we are and what we present is both genuinely hopeful and uncompromisingly realistic. You see, speaking love is not about finding the city's most crowded street corner with a bullhorn, and it isn't about turning your every conversation into a trap where you are luring someone in to the subject of your choice. Speaking love is just about living completely honestly. It's about being your whole self, your joys and your struggles and your practices and your failures and the sure place that you rest your ultimate hope. It's about being your whole completely honest self at church and at the office and running errands and with the kids and visiting family and over drinks with a friend. It is living your ordinary life while telling the truth in a way that is both genuinely hopeful and uncompromisingly realistic. Live today in Portland like Jesus is king. That's witness. But that's not all witnesses. We are also a community of witnesses by supernatural love. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. I'm making you witnesses, and I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out to live in this world in a way that speaks of another. So go, but not yet. Hurry up and wait. 
on the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. And then when you go, you'll go in power. You see, to be a witness in Jesus' kingdom requires that we are both filled and led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us power to live in a contested world by the way of Jesus' kingdom. So then, what are the primary characteristics of the kingdom of God? How will we know when we're living this sort of way? Another way to ask that question might be, how exactly did Jesus' life, meaning his words and his actions, bring God's kingdom to earth? Well, first, there's his miracles, uh, which reveal God's kingdom will be a time and place where human suffering, where sickness, poverty, oppression, natural disaster, and death will be banished. Secondly, there was Jesus' forgiveness. Uh, The thing uh, or the aspect of Jesus' ministry that seems to infuriate the priests the most is that he goes around forgiving people apart from a temple or uh, qualifications, uh, which means God's kingdom is going to be a time and place of reconciliation, of restored union between God and people and between people and people. And then finally, there's his teachings, which paint a collective picture of life by brokenness, vulnerability, and trust. Humility is the foundation for both joy and power. Scripture points to the Holy Spirit as the source for all of that, for every characteristic of God's kingdom. For instance, when it comes to the miraculous, Acts 10, you know that You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing. The miraculous ministry of Jesus, according to the Bible, was done by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is an important note, given that when the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room, he gave them this message. He told them, This is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So it starts at home. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father promised, but stay in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. The same power that we see in Jesus empowering his ministry is given to each one of his followers in the very same measure following his resurrection. Luke wrote two New Testament books, Luke and Acts. The the book of Luke ends, I'm going to fill you with the miracle working spirit that filled me, empowering you to live in this world by the power of my kingdom. So go, but wait. Wait until you've received the spirit that I'm promising you. And then Acts begins, I'm going to fill you with the miracle working spirit of my kingdom, the same spirit that filled me, empowering you to go and live in this world by the values of my kingdom. So go, but wait. Receive the Holy Spirit before you make a single move. As for forgiveness, Romans 5 tells us God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, forgiveness is the experience of God's love and grace in the very place of my failure and shame. It is one thing to sing about God's love in a room of friends when everything is going according to plan. It is quite another thing to make a complete mess of your life and then be met by by love, by the God who does not condemn you but forgives you, who has always known and always seen and always loves you, not your preferred self, but your actual self and loves you with a love that never runs out. And then finally, when it comes to Jesus' teachings about life by vulnerability and brokenness and trust, in John 16, he says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong, uh, prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. That is part of the job description of the Spirit, which is a grace because a broken and contrite heart is the very foundation on which God's kingdom comes. Without a broken Peter, you don't get the day of Pentecost. Right? Peter steals the show a hundred times. He's got plenty of great moments. But the moment that God worked in him deepest and filled him fullest, the best thing that ever happened to him, if you can bear to believe it, was his denial. Because Peter's denial was the inciting incident when his hard interior got broken. And it was then that God was able to reform him into the rock on which he would build the church. 
Theologian Michael Green says the great characteristic of the New Testament church is that it consisted of men and women who had received a living experience of the Spirit in their own lives. That is what turned the first disciples from a company of disappointed folk whose leader had died, risen, and left them into a church. The reception of the Spirit. We are a supernatural people empowered to carry out Jesus' supernatural ministry of miraculous power, inexhaustible forgiveness, and life through brokenness and vulnerability. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann Moltmann says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural uh, miracles in a natural world. They are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. You see, what I'm calling supernatural is simply living by the natural order of another world. And that's what witness is. It is to live in this world like Jesus really is king. The supernatural ministry of Jesus did, not, did uh, occasionally, from time to time, happen within the temple. But unquestionably, the vast majority of supernatural snippets from the Gospels and the life of the early church in Acts happened beyond the church walls, in the context of ordinary life. My most memorable experiences with the Spirit's power have all happened in the wild, not the domestic. The Holy Spirit in the church is domesticated. It gets great in the sense that a house cat is great, (laughs) declawed and cuddly, but the Holy Spirit in the city is wild. It's scary in the sense that a bobcat is scary, but a bobcat's also a whole lot more powerful than a house cat. My wife, Kirsten, uh, was sitting at a sidewalk table of a cafe on 28th with a couple of friends one evening a few weeks ago when Stan, a father that we know from our children's school, was walking past. Oh, hey, Stan, how's it going? And he looks up a little bit startled. Um, not good. He responded honestly, um, probably just in the surprise of being greeted As it turns out, that very day, his wife had left him. And with no kids to tuck in that night, he didn't know what to do with himself. And so when evening rolled around, he just took a walk and was strolling around the streets of Portland, surveying the wreckage of his life. And so she invited Stan to sit down with him, and he did. And she asked questions, praying in the back of her mind the whole time. She listened prophetically, attempted to engage supernaturally, Because what Stan needed that night was not a normal, natural, casually understated faith, a domesticated expression of love. What he needed was love, love that has claws, supernatural love that's scary but powerful, love that won't just lounge with him on the armchair but will hunt him down and and pull him in. And that is precisely why you and I have been filled with the Holy Spirit, so that we can live in this world as witnesses. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. There is just this one requirement for living as a witness, though. You have to have your eyes open. Right? Your DNA can be all over the crime scene, but if you were asleep when the crime went down, you're not a witness. To be a witness, your eyes have to be open. So here is where you start with supernatural ministry. Every single day, ask God to open your eyes to his invisible but presently invading kingdom. Just say, Jesus, open my eyes today at the off club tonight, at daycare pickup this afternoon, as I'm walking the dog this morning. Open my eyes today. Show up to your ordinary life supernaturally, by which I mean living governed by the laws of the only natural world that is being restored to this one. And then lastly, we are a community of witness by sacrificial love. The most profound act of Jesus' love was not by his healing power, but by his sacrifice. Most clearly revealed on the cross, but the way Jesus died was only the dramatic crescendo to the way Jesus had always been living. 
At great sacrifice to his own popularity and reputation, Jesus befriended lepers and sex workers and tax collectors. He was the living fulfillment of the law, which called those uh, that society saw as disposable sacred. The God of Israel gave his divinely inspired laws to people in a way that flipped uh, the survival of the fittest society on its head. Jesus is the living embodiment of that very God, and he is living in this world like a different social order reigns. An order where the last will be first, and where the weak will be made strong, and where the, those who are mourning will be call, called blessed, and where God stores his greatest treasures in jars of clay. And then the early church, bearing witness to the way of Jesus, included the enslaved and women and Gentiles. And that appeared to all the insiders, to Celsus and all the other cultural critics of the day, to be the death of the movement. It was death to any movement to just contradict the Roman social order in such an obvious way like this. But like Jesus, what looked like death turned out to be the most unstoppable kind of life. Abbe Pierre was a French Catholic priest living in Paris uh, as France tried to recover from Nazi occupation. Thousands of houseless beggars lived in the streets of that reeling city trying to find its footing. And in the midst of that time, Paris was struck by one of the harshest winters in its history to date. Parisians began freezing to death in droves and Pierre could not take the political debates as the people who were being debated about were losing their lives in the streets. And so he left the church and began to mobilize. He didn't formally leave the church. I mean, he took his ministry outside of the church doors. And he began to mobilize the houseless community. He taught them to create lanterns using uh, thrown away glass bottles and rags to warm themselves. He helped them build a warehouse out of the rubble that was left behind by the war where they could take shelter from precipitation. And then he commissioned each one of these that he had befriended to go and befriend and begin to serve one other beggar in the same or worse condition than they were in. That movement became known as Abbe Pierre and the Rag Pickers of Emmaus. And years into that work, the houseless community was nearly entirely eliminated in Paris, not by political upheaval, but by one priest who took the ministry of the church outside of the doors of the church. And you would think that that would be a result that Pierre would celebrate, but instead he viewed that result as a coming crisis, saying this, I must find somebody from my beggars to help. If I don't find people worse off than that of my beggars, this movement could turn inward. They'll become a powerful, rich organization, and a whole, the whole spiritual impact will be lost. They'll have no one to serve. You see, what he discovered in the harshest imaginable suffering is there's something about sacrifice that fills the human soul with meaning and purpose like nothing else does. Something comes alive in us in sacrifice, and you've almost certainly experienced it, right? A parent exhausted from work who's able to sit up all night next to their sick child, or a stranger running to the scene of a car accident to pull a victim out of a car that's turned over on its head, or a week's worth of nights sitting up listening to the beeping heart rate monitor of a friend or family member in the final moments of their life. There's a surge of meaning and purpose and conviction that runs through us in sacrifice that is very difficult to describe, but it's effortless to experience. Something like passion and purpose and meaning, like the Imago Dei written into the human soul is enlivened by sacrifice like nothing else. And equally, there's something essential within us that lies dormant when we live without sacrifice. There is something uh, that dies within us when our lives turn inward and the image of God becomes distorted within us when our lives are devoid of being poured out sacrificially for another. The psychologist Viktor Frankl, or psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, excuse me, says, being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself, be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or to another human person to love, the more human he is. People run on love, and ru love runs on sacrifice. If we really want to live, we will live sacrificially. The word witness in Greek, the language of the New Testament, is martus, from which we get the English martyr. 
very literally in the early days of the Jesus movement to be a witness and a martyr were functionally identical. But even apart from persecution, a death to the self, to be a martyr of sorts, has always been core to becoming Jesus' witness. Martus is used very, uh, very sparingly in the New Testament up until the book of Acts. And one of the four places that you'll find it, the only repeated reference to this word comes when Jesus is on trial and a priest tears his robes and screams, why do we need any more witnesses? A question immediately followed by the first of many pronouncements, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus was the first witness, the first martyr in this upside down, come alive by dying kingdom of his. And then he calls us, to become just like him. Great. So just to be clear, man, all I need to do to live as a witness is lead a friend to Christ, share a prophetic word with an unsuspecting co-worker, supernaturally heal my neighbor's pancreatic cancer diagnosis, and befriend a suffering person who then goes on to join my family around the Sabbath dinner table, all while providing for a family, paying the mortgage, getting next Tuesday's presentation done, and making sure the kids are off to school on time tomorrow morning, right? Easy. Thanks. Thankfully, we're a part of a body, and it is collectively, not individually, but collectively that we make up the witness of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you has a part in it. Between these two bookend statements, Paul makes the point that a body only works cooperatively as one. The foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and go off on its own. The eye can't say to the nose, I don't need you, and go off on its own. No one individual part of the Bible, or I'm sorry, of the body can sustain life on its own, and no individual part of this body can bear witness to Jesus in a life-giving way on our own. No one will express the spoken supernatural and sacrificial love of bearing witness to Jesus individually. God makes his appeal to the world not primarily through ultra-gifted, heroic individuals, but through communities together. So what am I called to do? Actively participate. Dr. Paul Brand, an accomplished surgeon, takes Paul's body metaphor all the way down to the microscopic cellular level. He says that in a human body, cells have more autonomy than a foot or a hand does. Right? A foot taken off of the body has no life at all, but a cell can live in the body as an active participant or it can cling to some level of its own autonomy. Some cells uh, might enjoy the body's benefits while maintaining a form of independence. Medically, those cells are called parasites or cancer cells. Some cells live within a body mooching off of its life while not giving back, actively participating within the body, and they destroy the body. So what am I called to do? Actively participate. And by doing so, we bear witness to Jesus, and when we don't, we destroy the very body that we're a part of. So the practice for life in a community of witnesses is up right now at bridgetown.church teaching, and we will actively live it together this week in our Bridgetown communities. Additionally, I'm really excited about this. We are, have begun creating family practices, one for every teaching series, which are designed for parents to practice what we're teaching on Sundays with your children, as our children's ministry is partnering with uh, our, our whole church in our teaching subjects. This is a way that we can begin to practice these things together as uh, immediate families in homes, and that is also up on our website as we speak. So we'll land here today. My father was captured by a vision, a vision of living as a witness so profoundly enlivening that he was ready to trade everything he'd accumulated up to that point for it quitting my job, selling the house, moving to the Kyrgyz capital to love people into the kingdom. And here's the guy running that mission, the guy who made that very trade himself, the guy whose job is to recruit people to do the same thing that he had done. And my father sitting in front of him saying, I'm ready to do it. And he says, no, don't do it. Go back home where you've planted roots and live there exactly how you 
think you would move here to live. Mother Teresa famously used to refuse to accept people to come and serve alongside her in Calcutta who were leaving robust relational networks back home to do so. You see, over time, leading her ministry in a foreign place with a growing reputation, she had become an expert on weeding out the many misconceptions that we tend to have when it comes to what it means to bear witness. She could spot a spiritual thrill seeker a mile away. and She noticed that many seemed to think that witness had to be grand to be called witness and that others would then count themselves out if the limits of their lives prevented them from doing something grand out of witness for Jesus. She famously said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. She learned to weed out those misconceptions with the simple instruction, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Luke 8, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over how much Jesus had done for him. What's going on here? Just as the movement's taking off, Jesus tells a man not to follow him. He sends him back home. But he sends him as a witness. And Jesus comes back here, back to the same shore, not a lot later. This story from Luke 8, it's also recorded in Mark chapter 5. And in Mark chapter 6, we read, when they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret and anchored there. Hold on. Genesaret? as in the region of the Gerasenes, as in the place that our teaching text began tonight, or today, when is it? <laughs> yeah, Jesus sailed back over to check in, and not a lot later, they're back at the home where he told the delivered demoniac to return to and live as a witness. And here's what we read in Mark 6. As soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The people recognized and ran to Jesus. They were healed, restored, freed. Another kingdom, ruled by another king, came to rest on the region of the Gerasenes. How? because the richest harvest comes from the deepest roots. You should have seen this coming. I told you the punchline before the joke, the last page before we read the story. Sometimes God calls us to extraordinary world-crossing forms of witness, but most of the time, he just calls us to return back home and live as witnesses, to live today in Portland like Jesus is King.